what really interests me more and more is the go-to-market strategy, sort of the, the, the real assessment of the approach from going to, you know, from going from zero to one. Well, we've survived another week and the strange life we're experiencing now is, of course, having a big impact on InsureTech and scale-up companies, investments and investors. So I was delighted to have the chance to talk recently, this was recorded on Friday the 27th of March, to Ruth Foxblader from Anthemis. Ruth has an extensive career as an investor in both insurance and now working with a VC. And she's working with many well-known companies and entrepreneurs. We covered a whole range of topics and of course the pandemic was one of them but there's a lot to learn here about the opportunity within and around insurance and technology and the themes that large-scale investors look for as well as some top tips on how they assess their potential investments i hope you're still managing to keep fit and stay sane this is matthew grant from instec london and here is ruth fox blader Ruth, it's fantastic to have you on the Instet London podcast. I've heard you speak to others and I'm really looking forward to a chance to catch up with basically what you're doing at Anthemis and also a little about your own journey to this point. So you are one of the partners at Anthemis. Uh, before joining that Anthemis, you were seven years as lead investor at Allianz Ventures. You work for PepsiCo, you set up your own company. And if my math is right, you sit on the board or you advise to at least eight companies in the Anthemis portfolio. So you've got a lot going on. Uh, so many thanks for uh, taking the time to speak today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I also have four kids and two birds, uh, which feels so much more stressful in the days of coronavirus because we're all in one small house together. Well, I did notice in your bio, it said you'd like to spend as much time as possible outside. So I guess that's not really possible just now, is it? Well, I left New York a while ago, and then I moved to Paris, and then I left Paris to live in Eastern France, precisely because I love spending lots of time outside when I'm not working, which is almost never, but I am in the lucky position of having a small bit of green space, which I'm allowed to walk outside into, but we are under lockdown, so it is complicated. It's tough. Well, I can hear the birds in the background. We've had seagulls. What, what kind of birds have you got? Because we, like we like to make sure we name check everybody on our podcast. Oh, yes. So the birds are two budgies, uh, both of whom at a, about a year interval showed up at my house for some unknown reason and I put into a cage. Good. Okay. Well, at least you've got some live, uh, wildlife to look at whilst you're all cooped up. So Ruth Anthemis is, of course, one of the most well-known investors in financial services companies. I think you've got about a third of your hundred or so companies are involved with insurance. You've been going over 10 years so clearly you've got a lot of experience personally and through the organization in, in this area. Um, but what, can you share some of your specific investment theses that help you define the investments you look at and who you actually invest in? Absolutely. Uh, so Anthemis uh, has been operating for about a decade. Um, we are uh, sector-focused, global leading uh, fintech investor. And we are thesis driven. So we do define areas that we believe will be impactful. I think a few of the underlying themes that we believe in are really that collaboration between the financial services industry, 
um, and startups will drive innovation in the sector. We're looking for companies that are, that are going to make positive change in the sector. And we really look for diverse teams, which are addressing new problems. One of the other things I noticed you've done is released a white paper on embedded finance, which I thought was, was really interesting, this idea about how the finance parts actually seamlessly integrated into transaction. And I particularly like the fact that you mentioned it's zero sum, meaning there's value for both providers and their customers. But could you, could you talk a little bit more about that and also which industries you see that being most relevant for? I think a fundamental part of our thesis at Anthemis is the concept that finance is the nervous system of the economy and insurance particularly is uh, fundamental to every industry and every subsector of the economy. Therefore, we find uh, companies which are relevant to financial services, which other people might not consider sort of fintech companies. And in order to identify those companies that have a huge potential to change insurance, um, we look at very broadly across all of the subsectors of the economy. So we'll be looking at startups that address supply chain and logistics, urban planning and real estate, education, health and wellness, food and agriculture, mobility, energy, because we, we feel fundamentally that there are insurance products that already exist, obviously, in those subsectors and addressing those economic sectors, but also that there are new products that haven't yet been developed in those sectors and which you know, startup technology can help to develop. So if I understand that correctly, it sounds like you're looking for organizations that might not themselves necessarily thought about going into insurance. They're still at an early stage. So you, you, you work with them and then you sort of help them understand the opportunities in insurance and, and, and get the benefit of having a large portfolio of companies. You can potentially look at some, some partnerships and collaboration as well. Is, is that, is that my, my correct in how I'm understanding that? Yeah, I think that Anthemis has had a really good track record of taking companies that don't necessarily identify themselves as financial services companies or fintech startups and helping them to see the finance angle and what they're doing. Yeah, it's always interesting the, the language that's used between the US and, and the UK. And I, I came across an article that said 20 uh, fintechs are going to blow up for 2020. And one of your Companies stable was mentioned in that. Of course, I read it. Actually, it was a kind of, I think it must be a U.S. definition of blow up, which is good, as opposed <laughs> to a, a European version. So, I guess they they are they're an Venture is company. high risk. You never know. No, I'm just yeah. kidding. Yeah, yeah, but uh, that's a that's a really interesting company. Can you just talk a bit about what Stable does because they're in the agricultural business? Aren't yeah, they? they are. They are. So Stable is looking at helping uh, the food sector. Uh, with its exposure to volatile prices. And so they've used a lot of very complex math uh, to understand price volatility and to create protection products which uh, allow businesses of all sizes, whether those are farmers, small farmers in the UK or you know, large food giants to hedge um, without using derivatives products necessarily, using an insurance product against price risk. And what's really interesting about Stable is that they figured out how to do this even for products where there is no liquid derivatives market. So anywhere that there is a reliable index, we can uh, create a protection pro product uh, against price volatility. And then they were founded by uh, a farmer, I believe. Yep, Richard Council. He uh, actually is, is quarantined in his farm in the West Country as we speak. 
yeah, I guess being quarantined in a farm in the West Country is probably a bit more pleasant than being stuck in a uh, in a flat in the middle of a middle of a city somewhere. But <laughs> so hard heard. nonetheless. Um, so just I wanted to talk a bit about climate generally. Now, Climate Corp was one of the early investments for Anthemis before it was sold to Monsanto in 2013. But just on that general theme of climate and and, and in particular climate change, you know, for a number of years it's been well recognised that we need to be doing things differently to reduce the impact of climate change. But I think from an insurance perspective, my observation has been most of that's been outside the annual cycle and therefore it's been very difficult for companies to build products or build businesses that actually are directly linking insurance to climate change. But that seems to be changing now with you know, the recent floods and wildfires. And it seems to be that it is starting to, there's starting to be interest in how that's changing annually. Are you seeing much going on in that area? And are there any of your companies you're involved with that you can talk about specifically that's looking at more of the near-term impacts of climate change? So absolutely, this is uh, something that I have been focused on for the past couple of years. Um, I, it came on my radar when I was at Allianz, and Allianz divested, uh, the asset management divested of all of its interests in um, fossil fuel companies. And I started to think about, okay, well, wow, obviously this is um, this climate topic uh, is, is incredibly impactful for insurance companies. And it's one of the first industries that uh, really took a stand because of its you know, massive potential for economic impact. I have been looking more recently at sort of non-catastrophic climate protection. I think that we do a good job on CAT. I think what's more interesting is how does climate change and sort of incremental climate change, which is undeniably happening, and actually quite dramatic climate change, which unfortunately is, under, is undeniably happening too. How does it impact small and medium enterprise in all different ways? How do you assess the impact and how do you protect against it? So we uh, actually are in the process of working on a deal right now, which we will announce soon uh, with a company that addresses exactly that space. I think what's really interesting and it's, it's quite similar to Climate Corp is that we have so much more data than we ever had before. And we also have the capabilities to process that data more quickly and therefore to create very, very simple products, much like stable, where the end product, the end customer is a very simple proposition that can be sold at any time of the year, but where the underlying product architecture is extremely complex. And therefore the underwriting is very precise and the understanding of risk is, is very, very viable. And so what we're finding is that new companies are able to use new technologies uh, to create products that are quite interesting to traditional risk cap providers, which is essential for risk transfer and actually essential to launch a product in the market. I just want to drill into that a bit because there's a couple of things you mentioned in there, you know, just from my own background, that are yeah, getting easier, but also still, I think, very hard. So one is... The, the forecasting of the risk, as you mentioned the risk in there. So there's a risk that's defined you know, by the location of a property, for example, if it's in the floodplain. But the much harder thing to be able to, to manage is the forecasting of the risk in terms of actually what the activity is going to be. And I think you mentioned also that if you're not looking at catastrophes, you might actually be finding a way to solve this problem because you're looking at the more of the sort of regular type of losses. But is, is your approach, I know you can't tell us, what the deal is you're doing but as you direction are you looking at more parametric type triggers so you get that very clear sort of binary loss at the point of underwriting and then the risk is i guess is a balance between the sort of physical location and protection versus the the forecasting of the likelihood of something happening 
Yes. Uh, to answer simply yes, I think there's something incredibly interesting about parametric products today. Um, number one, you know, the fact that we can make them and deliver them. Number two, the, the fact that we're eliminating an extremely cost-heavy part of the insurance uh, process architecture, which is claims. And number three, uh, the clarity of the product, the ability to agree with, with a customer. If you experience this much snowfall and you have to pay this much for the snow, plow, snow plowing, here is your protection. Um, so I think that that is a, a type of product based on sort of advances in data science and really the ubiquity of sensors that we're now able to create and which can address climate risk. Yeah, I was talking to Ian Bartholomew, one of the founders of Flood Flash, sort of after the recent floods here in the UK, and he's the first um, insurance organization that I've come across who was actually delighted to be talking about the fact they'd paid out claims on the back of an event because it sort of proved their model. And you know, exactly as you said, it was very clear, quick, clarifying, and it's a great example of where parametric actually, actually works. So I think that's going to be a really a significant area to see developing over the next, uh, next 10 years or so. Um, I just want to come back. You mentioned disruption earlier on when we, when we were talking about your, your thesis. And you know, that was clearly one of the areas that was sort of drove in, there's a concept of insurtech about five years ago. I think people have realized generally it's actually really hard to disrupt any incumbent industry. And that, you know, from my experience in the catastrophe modeling world, it really required you know, what I call a kind of system shock when we had Hurricane Andrew and, and the Northridge earthquake and companies went out of business and it just shifted a massive change. So, but when you're looking um, at your own investments, we're going to talk about the, the pandemic in a minute separately, but it, how do you see that balance between the requirement for some kind of external shock to drive change versus the ability to sort of incrementally um, you know, drive change through with the companies that you're, you're investing in? Well, I think it's a, it's a good question because it's a, very, it's a very thorough question. It kind of maps to the way that I have looked at fintech over time. I mean, I think that we saw fintech really take off in kind of the, you know, sort of um, fired in the crucible of the financial crisis. And uh, a lot of um, interest in cryptocurrency and digital and digital currencies and also in challenger banks and sort of breaking up um, the existing system uh, really came about because of this monumental shock to the world economy and sort of the financial system as we knew it. At the same time, I think that it's very difficult, as you identified, to build a full, a full stack challenger company, whether it's a bank or an insurance company, because it requires so many different components. There's a capital layer, which is extremely challenging um, to build uh, via equity as a startup. Um, there's a sort of risk or underwriting layer, and then there's a distribution layer. And incumbent financial institutions have advantages typically in one or more of those areas. That said, uh, I love entrepreneurs. I am a, a strong believer in innovation, and I, you know, believe that we will see some disruptive companies succeed. By and large, the startup success in financial services is um, is a story of collaboration, where either a, a balance sheet is acquired from an incumbent institution, or underwriting capability, or the distribution channels or capabilities. 
So I think that what we really look at um, are companies that understand what they're good at and really know what their sort of special sauce is. And if they can expand that over time, great. But I would say expertise in at least one of those areas is essential to make a startup a kind of viable competitor in the financial services landscape. Yeah, that's just really helpful. So I'm going to come back in a second just because I'm really interested to learn a bit more about how you uh, assess your potential investments to the extent you can you can share it. But I, you know, I'm thinking about some of the companies in your portfolio, like Flock, for example, where they're basically creating an entire new class of business with insurance for commercial drone operators. It's never easy getting a business out there, but I, my view is that if you create a business where you're creating a new revenue line for insurers, then you've got a better chance of getting in the door. And I think crypto is another example. Although I think with cryptocurrency insurance or crypto wallet insurance, there's another new challenge emerging about the willingness of regulators and lawyers to allow that. But I think the one that's yeah, it's, it's challenging that you sort of allude to is trying to break into an existing established area and provide data when there's already data out there and, and the data essentially needs to you know, change the way people price which has got a much much harder to do when you've got an established business um but just coming back to, but yeah can I just coming back to what you look for so you've been doing this a long time now and there's lots of information available on the internet and some very good information about how companies should prepare pitch decks and what to avoid and all the you know the obvious ones yeah that i think we sort of know about um not going in and telling the investor or the insurer that they're stupid but i mean you touched on a little bit of this, but the, the, I'm sure there are some things you see in people when they when they walk in the door, you first meet them, that you sort of get a really strong intuition that this is a company that's going to be worth, you know, going further with and and, you, and gets you, you know, either excited or just to the extent that, you know, you really want to do more with them. Can you, can you sort of share what some of those characteristics are that you, you see? Sure. So I think, I think Flock's actually an interesting example. Um, you have an incredibly dynamic team, really sharp team, um, building you know, a new business in a new space. So as you said, it's a, it's a bit easier in this very traditional industry to be um, addressing a segment of the market, which maybe is too small for traditional uh, you know, incumbent companies to be interested in, and therefore there's a white space. Um, at the same time, what Flock has built, um, you know, quietly as they have um, you know, more and more deeply penetrated the UK commercial drone insurance space is uh, a quite incredible real-time risk engine and um, distribution capability. And so you can see this ability to take third-party data sets, um, you know, cross-reference it with a number of sort of first-party details uh, that you're acquiring very, very simply and very easily from the customer and um, create a real-time risk score applying to many different product lines, perhaps traditional ones. So I think that to answer the question, you know, a dynamic team always helps. Uh, a concept which is new, a, a way of thinking which is new, a really deep understanding of the problem space, um, and then the ability to take this new thing and perhaps apply it to other large addressable markets uh, is very attractive. Of course, you know, we're always looking for a big addressable market and that's something that you can 
as you said, read about on the internet. You know, this is something that venture investors look for. But in fact, you know, most startups launch, uh, who are successful, launch in a very focused way. And it's sometimes difficult to see that enormous market um, from, you know, the, the first go-to-market activities. But that strategy has to be there. That ability to grow into a really big company has to be there. Yeah, it's a fine balance, isn't it? And so I'm talking to people sort of looking, putting together their pitch deck. I sort of remind them this is a bit of a game to be played, which is they need to have the confidence that there's a big opportunity out there, but they need to be grounded in reality, as you said, to sort of focus on something they can solve short term, but not, you know, the hockey stick does need to show or it does need to be a hockey stick at some point. Um, and if it's not, then it's going to be really hard to get into an investment investment yeah. company but it, but it needs to it also needs to be granted in, in reality it's a very i think it's a very fine balance some of the people think do it really well and some really struggle particularly i think i mean i'm interested in your perspective but from the european sort of approach to this people tend to be quite conservative about what their their future is going to be and you know, make it very hard to get attention from organizations like yourself that needs to see some pretty significant um returns to make it worth your while yeah i mean my job is to sort of correct for those biases in a way. There absolutely is a stylistic difference depending on where the entrepreneur hails from and how they, you know, how they talk about things which you would think would be sort of um, undeniable or empirical like the size of a market. What really interests me more and more is the go-to-market strategy, sort of the, the, the real assessment of the approach from going to, you know, from going from zero to one. Um, I think that we, I see that, and it's actually less with, you know, European versus U.S. entrepreneurs, but actually um, mature entrepreneurs to first-time entrepreneurs. Oftentimes, first-time entrepreneurs will be really excited about the our opportunity, which is an excitement, which is legitimate, and the opportunity is legitimate, but there won't be a really clear sense of, okay, first I'm going to target this very small target segment using this type of advertising because that's where they live and these channels will be really performative. And once we have 23% of this market, we're going to be able to move on to, you know, like this sort of planning where you see people who are quite experienced being able to tell um, credible stories around how you're going to actually grow this business. And that can be very interesting um, and exciting because it also shows a sense of product market fit and a sense of what is this product, which, um, you know, can be, can be hard to define. That said, I would say there's absolutely no difference between first-time entrepreneurs and experienced entrepreneurs in how closely they follow the path. I think the entrepreneurship journey is always full of surprises. Yeah, <laughs> life, life, as we know, is. Um, well, on that, full of surprises, um, and thank you for that, Ruth. That was actually really helpful uh, and some different perspectives there. That, you know, I Don't sound surprised. Uh, <laughs> I'm always surprised, pleasantly so. Um, so yeah, we're a few weeks into the coronavirus as, as we're recording this. Who knows where we'll be by the time we go live in in, uh, in a week or so? Um, obviously, massive changes globally. Is there anything? Because there's two questions here. So, any immediate examples of where you're seeing that driving innovation in insurance? And, and there's a lot going on. So, just one or two would be great. And then I think to the extent you see anything happening longer term that's going to drive change and particularly positive things would be, would be great to sort of hear from you on those. As an investor, I guess I'm very much focused on uh, supporting my portfolio, 
um, analyzing uh, the kind of capital needs and the potential impacts for each of the portfolio companies on it uh, of an economic slowdown and you know which is really difficult because as you said you know we didn't know where we were going to be this time last week um, this week and you know we're not really sure where we're going to be next week or in two months so um, it is a time of great uncertainty which is uh, never good for capital deployment uh, that said we all know that volatility uh, presents lots and lots of opportunities so i think it's about um you know studying a lot of ships and assessing where the opportunities lie and of course in the first instance assuring kind of health and safety and you know including mental health because i think it's it's a challenging time yeah, and I, was, I was talking to somebody yesterday who, in their company, they're assessing the different personal characteristics of people as to, you know, whether they're extroverts and need to be talking to people and putting in place sort of measures so they're on the phone and uh, we, we sort of forget about that that side of it. But I think on the just on that point about you know, the changes coming, I think it is one of the things for me that'll be interesting is to the extent which you know, the, the impact of the pandemic will change how people think about other risks that they are kind of aware of but don't necessarily intuitively feel concerns for and i think cyber has become a bit like that uh, mm -hmm. where where you know we all we stopped and thought about it and say look there could be a global cyber catastrophe that could really grind things to a halt you know if you had an even nastier version of what we're seeing now but we don't to some extent it's not sort of built into the planning but it's not really intuitively built into it or explicitly built into it other than some of the things that the regulators are doing and i wonder when we come out of this there will just be a stronger sense of you know, we talk about surprises but it's partly determining specifically around individual types of major events like a pandemic or a, or a sort of natural catastrophe but there's actually more of a just a general you know what happens if business grinds to halt for any reason and how do you cover that and how do you cover a balance sheet you get balance sheet protection for insurance versus having to have it very much based around individual events and things so i just uh, or, or we'll just you know or, or we'll just do what people normally do and after two years we forget it happened and you know things start to go back to normal again so you know we don't know yet where we'll end up but certainly something to watch out for yeah um, i think the, another big question is whether or not insurers are going to remain interest, interested in these um emerging risks um and whether or not they're going to remain interested in sort of continuing to support innovation in the sector uh, i think that incumbent institutions interest in um in intratech over the last five years and increasing interest over the last five years has been a real boon to innovation in the sector and my hope is that uh, incumbent institutions can continue to define innovation and entrepreneur supporting entrepreneurs as a part of their growth strategies and don't pull back yeah well let's let's talk about that because yeah there have been some challenges and and i'm number of people i spoke to and i'm sure you hear the same thing you, you find it difficult often to get beyond the innovation team and the proof of concept and really get buy-in within the underwriting units you know people have got their day job to do um have you been seeing it yeah, before this happened but just in the last year or two sort of experiences are getting better to suggest that insurers are finding ways to actually break through that sort of friction to to innovating and getting into new areas or just, you know, doing existing things better? Well, I have a lot of time for innovation teams because I think that oftentimes those are the people in organizations who can be um, the champion for new projects. Um, so I, you know, I also think that there are an awful lot of folks who are coming out of the insurance industry who are innovating 
and who are, you know, getting involved with startups. And that's also been very helpful. Um, I don't totally blame insurance companies for not wanting to talk to a bunch of opinionated, you know, wacky people who don't really understand their business. I think that overall, um, the industry and uh, the startup kind of insure tech sector has gotten a ton better at talking to each other and making sense to each other uh, over the past five years. Yeah, no, good. Because I think it's only that bit we've moved on from. But I, the, you know, even today, or not today, literally, but in the last few months, you know, you know, I, and I share your support for the innovation teams. I think there's some people that are doing some really good things. But even even the best ones, I think, find it hard to get time with the underwriters. So I think we'll be interested to see to the extent that you know uh-huh. individuals and companies feel a personal, yeah, a, a personal responsibility, but also the, the organization gives them time to go and try out some of these new areas so that I agree with you and I but I do think there's also going to be you know the movement and fluidity now between people in the tech sector and people in insurance companies um, will automatically sort of allow for more and more change over time because there's just you know the potential to have that champion not just in the innovation team but who is an underwriter because they've worked at a startup or you know vice versa um, I think that I think this type of um, fluidity and conversation will just encourage innovation on both sides. Yeah, definitely. And actually, it, it, I was talking to um, Consiris about this to do the marine underwriting platform, mm-hmm. which I'm sure you're aware of. And what was interesting there, I mean, they are hiring um, underwriters sort of earlier in their career who are also actually really good analysts. So you know, traditionally, that might have been a challenge to get people that was technically strong. But you know, so now you get that combination of business knowledge people knowing the people but also knowing the analytics so yeah i can see there's just this time element here which is you get greater and greater mixing between the, the two groups and also you know with the help of organizations like yourself more funding available so that scale-ups can pay people comparable wages and, and actually encourage them in so yeah i think there's just a natural driver there one of the things i wanted to talk about was how these technology companies go to market and in particular we sort of touched on this a little bit but the difference between an organization that can actually build its own stack, you know, both technically and sort of go to market. So, you know, um, Trove would be an example or what is Trove is a good example from both perspectives. Um, Flock, you know, where, they, where they're actually able to go out there and sell and do the relationships versus where they have to work through a, a platform. And the reason I mentioned Trove is a good example is they've pivoted from selling an insurance product to now actually being the platform. But as you look forward, do you see... Yeah, more requirement on the one hand for, for technology companies to sell through platforms as opposed to going independent. And then do you see more opportunities on the platform side to help distribute the, the new technology? I guess I think about it from a customer need perspective. Um, I think about one of uh, the companies in my portfolio called Hokoto, uh, who have developed a single invoice credit risk insurance and essentially, you know, allowing just, sort of clicking a, a, a checkbox and insuring an invoice one by one, you know, wherever you might raise the invoice. And so first of all, being able to deliver that on a platform. So in the context uh, when an invoice is raised is obviously incredibly important, whether that's a marketplace or a, an accounting platform. And it's also where the customer would need it most. Um, so I guess I think about distribution from a customer need perspective, if you're creating uh, an amazing product that either doesn't exist or is difficult to access traditionally, and you're delivering it to customers where they need it, 
I think you'll be successful, whether you're delivering it through a traditional insurance broker, whether you're delivering it on an online marketplace or, or an accounting platform, um, whether you're delivering it at a car dealership, you know, this is, an, again, kind of this concept of embedded finance. People have finance needs that they might not fully understand until they're in a situation where they, um, you know, need to access a financial product. Okay, that's, that's really helpful. Um, so just before we wrap up, a couple more things. Um, I noticed recently that you've announced a $90 million first close on a discretionary fund, the Anthemis Insurance Venture Growth Fund. Um, I'm assuming that by discretionary fund, it means you choose, or not you personally, but Anthemis chooses which organizations to invest in. And then is that fund available to people generally to, to invest in? Yeah, actually, so we're, we're in the process of building uh, an awesome syndicate um, of like-minded insurance companies who uh, want to use venture investing to access um, the innovation ecosystem. And we are working together with our partners on identifying uh, growth stage, venture growth stage opportunities, which is pretty new for Anthemis. We're, you know, traditionally known as an early stage investor. So typically pre-seed, seed and series A. And this fund is going to focus on series B and C companies in the insurance space. Um, or, you know, as we define it, uh, touching insurance in some uh, fundamental and important way. I think that the reason that we've, well, I know that the reason that we've launched this fund is because we do believe that there are some emerging opportunities in that later stage pocket, which are going to be super impactful to the industry. So I'm really looking forward to getting started on that project. Okay, good. And, and just to be clear, is that a, a retail fund, you know, available to generally to consumers or is it more of a sort of fund aimed at corporate investors? Um, so it is, you know, we're, we're looking for strategic LPs coming from the insurance industry. Okay. So beyond the scope of most of us as personal investments, but certainly something to aim at. If you would like to write us a check, I am sure that I can arrange for something. Uh, I would love to be able to write you a check, uh, Ruth, but I don't think I'm quite at that level of um, investment capability, but no, good, good to, good to hear. I'd be interested to follow who you get involved with. And then finally, um, just a question that I'm, I'm always interested in from people who've got a lot going on. I mean, you've got a family, you mentioned you've got, um, you're, you're looking for new investors or investments and investors. Uh, you've got to manage some of your existing investments. You've also got to keep track of what's happening in the, the world around you. you know, how on earth do you balance all of that? And in particular, any tips for people to, um, you know, that you've got in terms of how they hack their life to be able to, to balance all of those and in particular, learn what's going on efficiently? Hmm. I think I would be pretending that I had figured something out if I tried to answer that question, which I feel like I haven't. But it's true. I think, you know, for many of us um, in this industry and at Anthemis, you know, we're kind of busy and trying to do it all. I really find that um, my life that I, I feel very enriched by all the different parts of my life. And I think that being a venture investor also means having um, a lot of creativity and curiosity and um, access to the different ways that different people think. So I would say that I probably should sleep more and work a little bit less, um, but otherwise um, eat a big lunch. I don't know. <laughs> I don't eat, advice. Eat, a, eat a big lunch with the right kind of people, maybe. Well, it's, uh, <laughs> you're obviously doing something right because you've, you've got a 
fantastic role and you're able to carve time out to to speak to me which is which is really appreciated ruth and thank you also for your support for interstate london um matthew jones is one of your colleagues and you know he's been a great supporter of ours and and uh, we've always valued our relationship with Anthemis um so, and, and and also your uh, your portfolio companies as well so of course who we, who we know and who we've showcased in various ways and will continue to do so before we wrap up is there anything else we haven't covered that you think is useful talking about no i just also wanted to thank you and i wanted to thank you um you know not only for this interview but also for you know the great work that you've done in the sector good well thank you ruth and uh, let you get back to all the things you've got going on and look forward to catching up soon maybe in person once all of this craziness is beyond us absolutely thank you have a good day well i'm sure you found something useful in there i did now instec london is up and running despite the house arrest and we're proving that the spirit of our face-to-face events can live on with a program of live but digital events coming to you soon so check us out at www.instec.london if you haven't already found us and finally in case you're wondering about the budgies so Ruth, sorry to jump in um the, i think the budgies are going to be a bit of a distraction actually we'll, we'll keep them in for the first part but yes yeah. i'm closing i think you will not hear them 